Well, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. It's been a month since we've been in Hebrews together, but I doubt that that's long enough for us to forget the chief purpose the pastor had in writing it. He wanted those who received this written sermon to endure, to be steadfast, to hold fast, to run the race. Chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Chapter 10, verses 35 and 36, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Like all believers, the recipients of Hebrews must continue to believe until the end to receive final salvation. And the pastor is confident they will. At the end of chapter 10 in verse 39, he writes, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so it was that the pastor took his hearers and us back into the history of God's people in Hebrews chapter 11. The men and women of faith in chapter 11 verses 1 to 40 were presented to illustrate persevering faith, faith that leads to salvation. They trusted in God's promises, believing that what God promised would come to pass. And at the end of it, in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Jesus himself was presented as the example par excellence of endurance, even as he is also the one who enables his people to endure. And so it is that the narrative of the past faithful culminating in Jesus now leads naturally into the present. Beginning in verse 4 of our text, the pastor turns his attention back in full to his recipients. And the message he has for them is as clear and challenging for us today as it must have been then. The main point of our passage this morning is in verse 7a. There the pastor says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Now the rest of the sermon this morning will be an attempt to explain the meaning of that sentence. And I don't know that we'll come to the point of fully understanding it, but I hope we'll come to see that within it lies the key to faithful living. We'll ask two questions about verse 7a that will take us then into the surrounding passage and hopefully into our own lives. First, what was it they had to endure? And second, why did they have to endure it? 
What was it they had to endure? And why did they have to endure it? That's how we'll proceed. And I hope along the way we can relate those questions to our own lives as well. We begin with what it was the recipients of Hebrews had to endure. Only by now, after many, many months in Hebrews, you've realized that the pastor does not exactly say what it was they had to endure, either here or elsewhere in Hebrews. But there are some clues in our passage. If we back up some to begin with, you'll recall how in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38, we read about Old Testament believers who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Then in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the pastor urged his hearers to look to Jesus, who, like those Old Testament saints near the end of chapter 11, endured a horrible death and was shamed, but set his eyes on the joy before him. And then in verse 3 of chapter 12, we get the first clue regarding what these first century believers were potentially facing. The pastor says to them in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we know that there's suffering in this church and that it's something that's threatening to make them grow weary or faint-hearted. And it would seem from verse 3 that what they faced was like the hostility Jesus endured from sinners against himself. That's why the pastor tells them to consider what happened to Jesus. Probably because the same kind of thing is happening to them. In verse 4, the beginning of our text, Confirms that, I think. The pastor says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It seems there's hostility and trouble and stress and suffering, but evidently no martyrs yet. Still, what they're experiencing is painful, as verse 11 of our passage indicates. All of that would seem to be in agreement with what we read back in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. There, the pastor said, but recall the former days. The point being that in some way, those former days are going to be like the present days for these hearers. Recall the former days when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And so the situation seems to be that the recipients of Hebrews were under significant stress and suffering due to hostility directed against them. Persecution in various forms, though so far not martyrdom. As best I can tell, 
That's the external pressure and threat and suffering they were under. They faced painful opposition from the unbelieving world. And some scholars try to get a lot more specific and try to identify specific historical moments or groups that may have been against them when this was likely happening, but we just don't know any of that for certain. And maybe part of why we don't is because that's not actually the main point here. Now, I want you to watch this because while we can basically describe the kind of thing that these Christians were facing externally, I think the point here is that the primary battle isn't in what's happening to them externally. It's in what's happening within them internally. Because what's happening internally is that they're growing weary, that they're in danger of losing heart and giving up. The pastor essentially writes this entire book of Hebrews to say, don't do that. Be steadfast under this trial. Hold fast to the faith. Run the race with endurance. And the big, big clue for me that the pastor is focused on this internal reality is right there at the start of verse 4. Did you pick up on this? Verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Note that. Their struggle is against sin. It's not, at least not in the first place, it's not in the first place a struggle against the Roman persecutors or the Jewish community that may have been persecuting them or whatever combination of external opponents they may have been facing, depending on how you want to construct the historical situation of Hebrews. Whatever's happening to them externally is real and it's painful. But the struggle is against sin. And so this is a big interpretive decision that not everyone agrees with. So I'm just telling you that. But as I read it, the sin in view here is apostasy. It is the shrinking back that the pastor mentioned back in chapter 10, verse 39. It is that temptation to fall away. It is to say internally in the face of this suffering that they were up against. It's just not worth it. This is too much. I didn't expect this. I had problems before I became a Christian, but nothing like this. I think I'll be done with it. That's what I think the pastor means here. That their temptation to fall away in the face of their suffering is their struggle against sin. Only if that's right, if you decide to follow me there interpretively, then I think you can appreciate 
that that has huge implications for how we approach this passage. Because now the issue isn't so much the specific suffering that the recipients of Hebrews were facing, though, again, it was specific and historical and very challenging. But the issue is how they were to understand the purpose of their sufferings. Verse 4 presents us with the reality that the Christian life is a struggle, brothers and sisters. And some scholars suggest even that the language the pastor uses here is meant to portray a Greco-Roman boxing contest still within the athletic uh, mindset that earlier the pastor was in chapter 12. Whether or not that's the case, the point is that we, like them, are to contend through trials against our opponent. And our opponent is sin. You and I may face hardship that is like what the recipients of Hebrews were facing, as many Christians in the world and throughout history have faced. Or you and I may face hardship that is of a different nature. But whatever it is, let's be clear about where the ultimate struggle really lies. It's against sin, against unfaithfulness against the unbelieving heart that would lead us to fall away from the living God. To read back to chapter 3 verse 12, this is not to diminish the seriousness of what these Christians were going through any more than it is to diminish our own suffering now or in the future. The pastor knows his readers were enduring significant hardship, but what's instructive to me is that the pastor doesn't give them strategies here for how to escape their external trials. Rather, he wages his own battle for their hearts, for their enduring faith. Which is what brings us then to the second question I have about verse 7a. And it is why? Why do they have to endure these sufferings? Why do you? Why do I? Well, let me put it this way. What's God doing in our lives, brothers and sisters, when we suffer? What's the goal? Why is it that we have to endure? What's the point? Is there a point? Or is hardship just something that's ultimately pointless and has to be endured but has no greater purpose in our lives? How do we think about these things in our daily experiences of life, Christian? Here's the answer our text gives us. The reason the recipients of Hebrews had to endure and the reason Christians all through history have had to endure, and the reason you and I have to endure whatever suffering and hardship comes into our lives is for discipline. That's what verse 7a says. It is for discipline that you have to endure. In other words, it's for the purpose of discipline. 
And please listen, because this truth can change your life. Whatever the struggles and hardships and sufferings and trials are that you and I have to endure by faith, that we have to endure faithfully, just like all those folks we talked about in chapter 11 did, whatever those struggles and hardships are, they're not pointless. Rather, they're for discipline. And the key to understanding what the pastor means here by discipline is found in verse 7b. God is treating you as sons. Now, all through this passage, the ESV has sons, and I get that that's the Greek word that's used here, and that in the time of the New Testament, the sonship language was the language that carried the legal meaning of inheritance and, and so on. But even knowing that, I, I would prefer if the translation said sons and daughters, since for us, the point here is that this encouragement is for all of God's children, God's people. So I'll be using sons and daughters from here on out in my sermon, even though the text only has sons generally, so you understand why. Verse 7b says, God is treating you as sons and daughters. In our sufferings and struggles, that is the truth we need to grasp hold of and hold on to. How easy it is for us to think we are out of God's favor somehow when circumstances turn against us. Is it not? And yet, this text teaches us there's nothing more perilous in trials than to conclude that God has forgotten us or betrayed us. He hasn't. In fact, it's just the opposite. But as that seems to be what the recipients of Hebrews were in danger of thinking, the pastor begins with a question in verse 5. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation or you could translate that the encouragement. Have you forgotten the encouragement that addresses you as sons and daughters? Notice he does not say, as if you are sons and daughters. The pastor is not questioning their identity as children of God. He asks them if they've forgotten the exhortation that addresses them as sons and daughters. Now, in the midst of their struggle and suffering. Because the whole point the pastor's making is that their present circumstances do nothing to negate that reality. In fact, their present circumstances have everything to do with that reality. Why? What exhortation does the pastor have in view here? Well, it's what he quotes in the rest of verse 5 and then in verse 6. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 that the pastor references. And it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. 
Now remember, in verse 7a, the pastor will explain that it is for discipline that his hearers have to endure the struggles they're facing. In other words, the struggles and hardships that come into our lives do have a purpose, and that purpose is for discipline. And according to Proverbs chapter 3, where does that discipline come from? Well, it comes from the Lord. This is the thing they have to understand about the hostilities they're facing. It is the discipline of the Lord in their lives. And according to verse 6, it's rooted in the love God has for his children. Look at that again. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. This, I think, is the foundational claim the pastor is making in this text, that your struggle and suffering isn't separate from God's love for you in this life. It's part of God's love for you in this life. Only that's an astonishing claim, is it not? Do we believe that? Listen to how one author puts it. Quote, The assumption bound up with the message of these verses is that when Christians experience trials, it is not because God is unable to protect them. God can preserve us from every trial. He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, when we enter into trials, God has allowed them and even ordained them. The question has to be, why? What's it all for? We'll get to that in more detail later, but for now, from Proverbs chapter 3, we can say that discipline is actually the telltale sign of being loved by God and being in family relationship to Him. Notice then how rather than being a negative concept, discipline here is incredibly positive. That's why in verse 5, Quoting Proverbs 3, verse 11, we're told we must not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. We are not to respond to it with either disdain or dismay. One commentator says, the first response, that is of regarding lightly, the first response is that of an arrogant son or daughter who ignores their father's discipline. The second, that is of being weary, the second is that of an insecure son or daughter who construes their father's reproof as personal rejection. Both reactions demonstrate forgetfulness of the truth of Proverbs 3 verse 12, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter whom he receives. 
Which means then I think it's probably a good time for us to clarify a little bit what's meant here by the term discipline. This word for discipline that the pastor uses four times in our passage occurs only two other times in the entire New Testament. One of those two times is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where it refers to a father bringing up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The other one is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 which says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training, the ESV translates it, but it's the same word that here in our passage is translated discipline. There in 2 Timothy, they translate it as training. The scriptures are for training in righteousness. And I think those two other references are helpful to understand that basically the word discipline comes from a root word that generally means to teach or instruct as one would a child. It can mean to correct or in some contexts to punish, but broadly speaking, it signifies more, much of what we would think of as discipline for the purpose of education. We could almost go so far as to say the point is that we experience God's education through hardship or affliction. Simply put, discipline trains the godly to be more godly. Because as we'll see, just as in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the goal of discipline in this Hebrews passage is righteousness. Yes, discipline can entail correction. Certainly we see that nuance in Proverbs, including in some of the terms that are used in Proverbs chapter 3, the text that's quoted here in Hebrews 12. But it's important to say that not all discipline is due to sin. And it's even more important to say that when it is due to sin, it fundamentally has as its purpose training and correction, not punishment. In fact, God's discipline of his true children never involves his wrath. This is incredibly important to understand. God's wrath in the New Testament is always in connection to his condemnation. That's not what the discipline of God's children is about. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As one scholar notes, quote, Every reference in the New Testament on the subject indicates that God's wrath rests upon and is reserved for the unbelieving. God has no such thoughts towards his own, no thoughts of calamity. So the preacher to the Hebrews who exhorts his flock to endure their hardships as discipline is enjoining them to a most positive pursuit that has as its goal the very growth of their souls. In other words, 
When the pastor tells his hearers they have to endure for discipline, he would have them understand that God is not using the opposition they face from the unbelieving world to repay them for their misconduct. Discipline from the Lord for his children isn't about that. Overall, I think Hebrews suggests a non-punitive, formative function for discipline. The goal in our passage here is endurance, not repentance. The pastor would have them see that their sufferings signify that they truly belong to God that they're his sons and daughters, that they're deeply loved by their heavenly father. In fact, according to verse eight of our passage, what should really concern us is if we find our lives are absent the Lord's discipline. If you are left without discipline, the pastor writes in verse eight, in which all, that is all the true children of God, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. Simply put, the hardships and disciplines we endure are signs of our legitimacy and ought to be embraced as telltale signs of God's grace in our lives. Another reason for the acceptance of enduring hardship as discipline is the argument from the lesser to the greater that we find in verse nine of our passage. Besides this, the pastor writes, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Now the father of spirits is I think a somewhat unusual way of saying the father of our spirits meaning the father of us as his covenant children. Numbers chapter 27, verse 16, refers to the Lord as the God of the spirits of all flesh. So to say he is the father of spirits is meant to encompass our totality as human beings and specifically as his own children. Here the pastor is comparing our earthly father to our heavenly father. And again, discipline has fundamentally to do with training, with formation. When a child recognizes that his or her parents' discipline springs from a desire for their well-being, the child respects such a parent. So much more then, the pastor is saying, in our response to the discipline God imposes on us, since it is better than that of our human parents, for as the pastor reasons in verse 10, whereas our human fathers and mothers disciplined us for a short time, God works throughout our lives to remold our characters through discipline. And whereas human parents exercise discipline as it seems best to them, that is within their finite and fallen perspectives and never perfectly, in his infinite wisdom, God infallibly knows what is for our eternal benefit. He disciplines us for our good, the pastor says. What a difference it makes to realize that God who is good has only good for us in his manner of discipline.
However difficult it may be for us to perceive it, our Heavenly Father is making all things work together for good in our lives. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 28, he always knows what his children need. And so ultimately then, what is that? What is the end to which our Heavenly Father disciplines us through the trials and sufferings we have to endure in this life? We don't need to guess. The pastor tells us in the end of verse 10, it is that we may share his holiness. Simply put, God trains believers so they become more righteous, so that we grow in holiness. God would have us share in his holiness in order that we would be like him. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The good news is that God himself is at work to bring that about in our lives, brothers and sisters. How? Well, through discipline. It is for discipline that you have to endure. And so the pastor makes this conclusion to his argument in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Of course, discipline is painful at the time. That's why it gets our attention. But the point is that we are to see a purpose in our trials, and the purpose is the discipline of the Lord. God is training us for godliness. So I like how one author puts it when he says, quote, We will think of God's discipline according to what we think of holiness. If we long to be made holy, if we cry out to have hearts renewed, for sin to be removed, to be like God in our thoughts and desires, then we will not flinch when he enters us into afflictions, since they are the regimen of his training for all who would be holy. It is productive discipline that you and I go through in life, brothers and sisters, and the end goal is worth it. It's just as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this, Peter says, that is, in the salvation to be revealed in the last time, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Along similar lines, James writes in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then in verse 12 of that chapter, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Brothers and sisters, suffering as a Christian is a sign that God is powerfully at work in our lives. He will discipline us in order to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness in us. Do you believe that? When we long for our final redemption, when we suffer for doing right, when we are persecuted for our faith, all such things are evidence that God has begun the good work of making us like Christ who himself learned obedience through what he suffered, as the pastor said back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The late Jim Packer was certainly right when he wrote in his book, Knowing God, quote, how does God in grace prosecute this purpose? Not by shielding us from assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil, nor by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances, nor yet by shielding us from troubles created by our own temperament and psychology, but rather by exposing us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to him more closely. This is the ultimate reason from our standpoint why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort or another. It is to ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn, thankfully, to lean on him. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence to trust in himself. In the classical scriptural phrase for the secret of the godly life, to wait on the Lord. End quote. Dear friends, the more we remember that our painful circumstances are orchestrated by God in his infinite wisdom and fatherly love, the better we will bear his discipline in hopeful endurance. We must assert that as followers of Christ, we often suffer not because we are out of God's will, but because we are in it. Not because we lack faith, 
But because we have faith, we suffer not because we need to be filled with the Spirit, but because we already are. It is for discipline that you have to endure, the pastor says. The mark of a genuine Christian life is endurance in the midst of suffering. The question is, will we trust him? Will we be subject to the father of spirits and live? If so, then we will not grow weary and faint-hearted. We'll keep our eyes on Jesus and keep running. And one day, ours will be the glorious inheritance of the saints. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.